This week on a lively experiment, not a good news week for Rhode Island. The poor condition of the Providence school system goes national. And CNBC says the state has the worst business climate in the country. A lively experiment is generously underwritten by. For 30 years, a lively experiment has been helping us understand the most important issues facing Rhode Islanders. Hi, I'm John Hazen White Jr. and I'm proud to be a sponsor of this great program. Joining us this week, Ken Block, the founder of Watchdog Rhode Island, communications consultant Donna Perry, and former U.S. Congressman Bob Wagan. Hello everyone and welcome to Lively. It is great to be back with you this week. The fallout continues over a report about the Providence school system that the Wall Street Journal now describes as an educational horror show. Should the state intervene? If so, what would that look like? And what is being done right now with the beginning of school just seven weeks away? Ken, we could do a whole half hour on this. Um, let's talk first about the potential for state intervention. Hasn't gone so well in Central Falls, so some people are saying maybe that's not the solution. Yeah, I, I can't tell you that I know what the solution to Providence needs to be, but for sure what we've been doing without really making a lot of changes over decades, right? I mean, this is not a problem that has just snuck up on us. We've We've had fair warning about the underperformance of not just the Providence schools, but a great many school systems in Rhode Island over the years, uh, and yet we haven't done anything truly substantive to deal with it. And you know, we have really thick teacher contracts when the, the, the act of teaching students is a white collar job, it's not a blue collar job. I think there are, are, are a great many reforms that we have to consider making. And at the end of the day, we have to ensure that all the adults that are involved in the education of our kids are acting in the best interest of the kids first. And I just don't get the sense that that's where we are right now. I, I would say, um, unfortunately, perhaps it takes this kind of a national embarrassment uh, for, you know, really top leadership to, to really have to, to jump in. And I think if you are the governor, I don't think there's any question that there is any track record to say the city of Providence and all their political issues with the school committee, which is t always too involved, and the unions, I don't, I don't think it's a city-wide, they're not capable of leading the kind of monumental change. Um, but like to, to Ken's point, that this sadly was like the worst kept secret. I mean, the Providence schools have been failing, and I think they're following practices back when Providence had neighborhoods that looked like 1974. Um, unfortunately, you have to have a playbook that they've had reforms in places like Harlem and inner city Boston or Detroit. I mean, you have a very challenging population, but you still have this very uh, union over heavy hand. And, um, you know, it, it's failure, sadly, is the result. And I, um, I, I just don't think you have city leadership when you see sort of the tone deaf reaction, by the way, of Mayor Lorza. Um, he didn't create all this, to be fair. You've had many mayors just kind of plow through and look the other way and oh the schools are a problem. So it's a whole generation of kids it, who really have not gotten a good yeah. education. Uh, I mean it's so multifaceted in terms of all the problems uh, and they have been happening over decades not the last three four or five years. You look at the elements 
infrastructure, first of all, is striking. If you take a, if you walk into the school system in Providence, you say, how can, first of all, these students come into a system like this and teachers come in and teach and do their job? So immediately what happens is you get turned off by the environment that you're in, the infrastructure, it's just not there. Uh, the, the pedagogy and the curriculum uh, is not student-centered. It is hierarchy-centered and it comes down. It's like a, a drip down to the students and really the best part of the system is good quality teachers understanding their students and having them more in a student-oriented curriculum versus a top-down curriculum. So there's so many different parts of this that have to be addressed. I don't think the state taking it over is going to change that. I think the state intervening and somehow uh, manipulating what's going on uh, would be good. And I would agree with uh, Donna and Ken that there are parts of this that you can't have the people who have been in charge be in charge to make reforms. It just doesn't occur that way. You have to have some dramatic outside push. Parents and other uh, people like that really need to be more involved than what they currently are. And yet, nobody's lost his or her job. And I, I, don't, I, I think it's a little quick to say, oh, head should roll or whatever. But nobody's saying something. Now, the superintendent has left, and that's always been an issue. Chris Marr is, uh, so they, they're going to do that. The other thing I wonder about is you have the new education commissioner coming in, uh, Ms. Infante Green, and how much of the air is this going to suck out of the room when she's got to think about the, the state overall, too. So Providence is so preoccupying now. I mean, she can walk and chew gum, but that's an awful lot to handle right up front. Well, so I think Providence is crucially important because we have other similarly underperforming school districts to Providence. Providence is not the only district that's in crisis. So we have to figure out quickly what will work and what will not work in Providence. We have to gather lessons learned. We have to apply them to our other districts. And, and frankly, if it was me, I would ask for a, a blank slate. I would want the ability to clear the deck of everything and rebuild that district from the bottom up uh, with the flexibility necessary to be responsive to these kids. And, and look, make no mistake, it's more than a generation of kids who've been impacted by the inferior mm. education that we have been providing. It's much more than that. And uh, we continue to harm students in Providence because we have students coming out of third grade, rising into fourth grade, who cannot read. And when that happens, that student is pretty much doomed to uh, a, a life of problems because they haven't been given the basic infrastructure of learning what they need. And in you'll never, you never catch up. Yeah. Seven. Go ahead. We cannot, I would say, start pointing fingers. Well, we have to look at it as the problems and try to figure out a methodology to move us forward. Part of that involves, whether we like it or not, the school teachers and making them more invested in the way they operate in the school principals having far greater authority within the schools themselves. It's like having small companies or corporations all over, around the city. You have to look at them as small pieces of the pie that have to be revised and changed. Principals have to be able to have the ability to hire and fire. They need to be able to do that. Teachers need to be able to uh, do the best they can and set a curriculum in their, pro, in their classrooms because they know what's best about the students that are there. If you don't have that kind of individual attention to the students, if you just have this broad policy up above dictated by the state, you will never ever get to the real core of the problem in an inner city. Providence has very different problems than 
Barrington, East Greenwich, Little Compton, and South yeah. Kingstown. Much different. And so we can't have a statewide program that's going to fit into Providence. It's just not going to work. But I'd like to point out, and I take a little bit of a respectful disagreement, I, I don't think you cannot say, it's not finger pointing. I mean, you, you have to hold people accountable. I think, and think you have said that, Ken. You, you, at this point, you have to hold people accountable. But I, I would say that if the state goes that route, she, they've got to look at things that came out of a very good RIPEC report this spring. They did a real hard-nosed contrast mass Rhode Island. It began with the scores. It was before this mess erupted, and it talks about what you're talking about. Um, they, mass went to supporting school-based management model. That mm -hmm. may sound like educational uh, language. Very important distinction. Um, the school, the principal, the superintendent goes to the principal. The principal can hire the educators and the class assignment that they know that person needs. And I just want to throw this in. Deborah Gist, almost 15 years ago, came into Rhode Island and said, you are violating the civil rights of these kids. Last thought on that. Massachusetts is a great example. We always compare the two of them. But if you remember about 25 years ago when Massachusetts started going through this, they went from the teachers and they built it up. They didn't come from the top down. Right. And if we are going to be successful in Providence, that's the way it has to occur. On the heels of the Johns Hopkins study, uh, CNBC ranked Rhode Island 50th out of 50 in terms of business uh, climate. And I, the governor's been out at this, uh, you know, mover and shaker conference in uh, in uh, Idaho. And I've been uh, joking. I've been filling in on talk radio. Now, what are the two outlets do you think that the people there, the movers and shakers, are going to be reading the Wall Street Journal and they're going to be looking at CNBC and I can see the governor like scooping up all the papers outside the hotel room and maybe like unplugging the Wi-Fi. Um, Donna, this is not a new story. I mean, I know you're plugged in with the, the business community, yeah. but it just seems the basic stuff we need to do. She said during the campaign, did I hear it right? We're number nine or we're number... 34, we weren't 50 when she was running for governor. <laughs> and, and there were a lot of, if, if you're the governor's team, there were a lot of stinging statements out of that CNBC report because they said, well, you can say all these things. We're picturesque. The, the data and the numbers do not support it. So, you know, you can't spin your way out of some of these things. Um, and, and, you know, the, the thing that it always returns to, and the business community has talked about this for a very long time, the cost of doing business hangs over the head of Rhode Island. Uh, Ken, you have fought these battles better than anyone for years. The cost of doing business, the needle is not, they did a, what, move the needle, they did that whole thing, but I, I don't think it's really changed in any measurable way, and that's what they're saying. This is not a new finding. There, yeah. there's, there's more than a decade of these lists where we are frequently at the very bottom or very near the bottom. What's very frustrating to me is the list comes out, there's a lot of finger pointing, the, uh, the Senate president punches the, the governor in the nose, the Speaker of the House punches the governor in the nose, governor's not around to punch back right now, but they all deserve a punch in the nose, and I'll tell you why, because in this last legislative session, they uh, jointly approved evergreen contracts. They uh, set up a firefighter overtime scheme that doesn't exist anywhere else in the country. Uh, they do things that make the cost of living higher here than it is in other places. The legislature passed a, a, a yet another auto body bill that would have jacked up the cost of auto insurance for everybody in, this, in the state. And the governor vetoed and it. And thankfully the governor vetoed it. And my point to all of this is 
they shouldn't be surprised that we're mired in the bottom when they ignore doing the things that can improve our situation, but instead they pass bills that make our situation worse. It's hard to defend. It, it really is. Uh, what's going what was on the legislature there? thinking with the Evergreen contract? Because especially in Providence now, you don't have that tool to try to go in. We know what they were thinking. We know, what they, we know who they listened to. And One of the things that occurs in every legislature, whether it be here or in California, wherever it may be, they look at their constituents rather than the broader issue for the state of Rhode Island. And the constituents, they feel, will be supportive of that because, in large part, many of their constituents who go out and vote and help them in campaigns are union-related and so they do that. But also the Evergreen contract, they thought that this will uh, gender, I think, uh, some stability in, in contracts. I, I think not. I think what happens is all of a sudden, who wants to negotiate a contract if you don't have to? If you've got a sweetheart deal now, you don't want to do that. I would say this. There are a lot of things like Evergreen contracts and other things that are, I, don't think, I don't agree with. But the biggest focus should be on development of small business and redu reducing the infrastructure obstacles within the bureaucracy that occur. There are so many different things that uh, protect um, the big businesses, and then we go for the let's make a deal kind of thing. And we fail to really work on how do we develop and nurture startups and new businesses. That's what bothers me the most, because if you're going to do something that's going to be positive for unionized workers, you've got to think about how it's going to impact the overall economy of the state, particularly when it comes to small businesses. I was a small businessman for years, and frankly, I was frustrated I, with what went on with the state. Could never get any place, fees all the time, obstacles all the time. You gotta make it easy for businesses to strive and to exist in the state of Rhode Island. Why do you stay in Rhode Island? <laughs> I ask myself that question uh, not uh, uh, very frequently, actually. It, it's, a, it's, it's very difficult. I can move right across the border mm -hmm. and save a lot of money. Just by living across the border. Yeah, correct me if I'm wrong. In one of your runs for governor, maybe your first run, didn't you say, let's fix Rhode Island? Was that your That was slogan? number two. Number two. <laughs> let's fix Rhode Island. The problem is a lot of Rhode Island doesn't want to be fixed. I think that's it's one true. of the... I, don't you think? It's true. Why come in and upset the apple cart when we've got a pretty good deal, right? I, I don't know that that's true. I think that a lot of people, it, it's hard for the average, you know, busy, working, weary, middle-class person. They can't equate things like an evergreen contract to why their town's property taxes, which, by the way, directly affects that, will never go down. Um, but they don't and, have a lobbyist they don't at the state house. Right, well, and sure. that's right. And I right? would just point out... And they don't participate But they're in the supposed to have a lobbyist and the and, representatives and senators. And, but, and I agree with what Donna's saying, but if the people do not get aggravated or agitated, they, well, then they must be happy with what's going on. Well, I have a quick question. In Barrington, Barrington's two representatives... Uh, on the Evergreen contract bill ignored the pleas of Barrington's town manager who said you cannot pass this bill it will negatively impact everybody in the town but they ignored that they ignored the, what the, the economic implications were going to be of passing that bill and they passed it. Joe anyway. Solomon's kid, right? Right. The mayor of Warwick, who's into it up to his neck. And the League of Cities and Towns. I mean, you know, the average person might not know every detail, but the League was very much against it. They were very loud and vocal about that. Uh, and, and still they do it. So I don't know. You can pat yourself on the back. They leave the session. But, you know, when you talk about back to the CNBC, the cost of Rhode Island, I believe, is the 10th highest cost of living state in the country. But it, Rhode Island is also the poorest state in New England. 
Uh, so I think it's just there are all these disconnects and, and unfortunately um, some of the best cost of living states, by the way, you can't just claim it's the Northeast, they hide behind that. Massachusetts, Vermont and New Hampshire scored very high as affordable states. Ma Mass was more about one of the best to do business in, I should say. Not, it's not a cheap state, but the you know, you get something back on the other end because it's a thriving economy. Let's do a quick o recap. I mean, just your sense on the General Assembly session. It's been a couple of weeks. We haven't had you on. Uh, the good, the bad, the ugly, what you might want to have seen, what you like out of it. I think there were some very good things that came out of it. I thought the University of Rhode Island becoming its own separate board was really good. It's an economic driver for the state of Rhode Island. I think that will yield a lot of benefits uh, long term. And uh, it was uh, something that's been in the hopper for 20 years, uh, at least 20 years, uh, finally came to fruition. I think that was a... a well, the fact that the speaker sponsored the bill, I think, helped a lot. <laughs> it helped enormously. I've never seen that before, quite frankly. So Dooley somehow the got bill, the I ear of the... the entire bill. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, uh, so I thought that was very, very positive. I think the Evergreen Bill was certainly one of the most negative parts of the General Assembly. The General Assembly is not over. I, I think when they're considering now uh, this special IGT bill, um, I think that's going to be something that could be a, a detriment or a positive thing for the state, depending upon what they do with it. We'll get back to IGT in just a second. Good, bad, ugly. There was a there was a success that's notable, and the Medicaid assessment tax that would have really just gone to businesses uh, was able to be pushed back and I think that that was a significant another you know could have been a really troubling fee so you know some things they whittle around the edges they do manage to push that back that didn't go forward that's it that was an important uh, thing in terms of cost of doing business sir there was very little that was discussed in this last legislative session that dealt with our economy that dealt with trying to improve the business climate to help reduce the tax burden uh, on uh, on the taxpayers and yet we're dead last so we had we used a huge amount of time beating each other up over abortion about guns about you know social issues and we've totally lost sight of we're dead last. Where should we be spending our time and energy? So I'm hopeful that in the next legislative session we can table the things that can afford to be tabled in the here and now and let's treat the economic problem at like the crisis that it is and we need to put all hands on deck and we need to pass some laws that make things better. I'm not sure that the, the people uh, of the, the taxpayers in Rhode Island uh, agree on some of those issues. I think many of them think that the abortion issue and gun issues uh, are paramount and they were happy that those were dealt with. Uh, one of the things that often strikes me is that when we get into a crisis, it's the crisis actually hurt, occurred four or five years earlier. Uh, I go back 30 years ago to uh, this, uh, the credit union crisis in Rhode Island. Everybody thought it happened in 1990, 91, 92. It happened in 86, 85, when the legislature was asleep and not doing anything about regulating credit unions and, and banks in, the, in Rhode Island. I think that's what's happening with the economy as well. People seemingly are happy because they're employed, there's a low unemployment rate. Their 401ks are doing they're, okay. They're doing fine. The, Wall Street's doing fine. Everything's seemingly going okay. We'll move forward two or three years from now, all of a sudden people will say, why didn't we do some of the things that Ken is talking about? Why didn't we do some things for small business? Why didn't we do some things to really reform education? 
And if we take a look at past history, that's when people will say, now it's time to change those business laws. Now it's time to change education. Although I do think they passed a good education reform bill this year that I hope in two or three years will have its uh, mark on the state. So Ken, when the news came out about the, uh, the special deal for Dr. Pedro, I thought it'll take Ken 17 <laughs> seconds to tweet about the line item veto. Yeah. Um, so, you know, but here we are, that all happened in last session. Are people going to be, you'll be thinking about it, but is that going to carry the momentum to get that passed in the next? Yeah, I think uh, I'm heartened by the governor's, uh, uh, when she signed the budget, she produced a letter that uh, was almost a veto letter, but she didn't veto the budget. And one of, the, one of her paragraphs discussed the need for the, the line item veto. I suspect directly in response to the, the million dollars that was earmarked for, for Dr. Pedro. The Dr. Pedro earmark uh, is a huge boon to the push to get a line item veto. That's exactly the kind of spending item that the line item veto is designed to help uh, everybody uh, identify that it exists and then remove it. But apparently it was buried, so I'm not even sure the line item veto would have found that one. Maybe it would have if well, the governor's people had dug in a little part, bit. Part of an effective line item veto is ensuring that you have budget transparency. So uh, the Dr. Pedro spending uh, that million dollars of spending needs to be its own line in the budget that comes through. By the way, and it is, he is a line in the budget. Right now, it's just not clear that that line is made public by the Speaker and by the Governor's well, office. Well, and clearly, Governor and, and, Raimondo and Kachiri had both taken it out and the legislature put it back in. Correct. Line item veto? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a tool that uh, this has been discussed over the years. It's a tool that successful states absolutely use and it it there are times when that's that would be very helpful for the Rhode Island budget they talk about it changing the balance of power I, the balance of power is kind of out of whack in terms of the governor anyway now no it's one of the weakest governor's uh, positions in our constitution in the, in the country uh, I think it's absolutely necessary to have a line item veto. I think it's important uh, to give some a greater parity between the governor's office and the legislature. Uh, the biggest question is, are they really willing to give up that power and that authority that they have within the budget bill? Because so many things go into the budget bill that are not really budget related, and they get passed by way of that. And the governor has to either veto the entire bill or um, let it become law. Um, I think that you need to have a constitutional amendment and frankly I'm for a constitutional convention. Mm. I know many people before were opposed to it uh, and including the ACLU the last time around. I think we need to have one because it's time that we start overhauling part of our constitution uh, that is necessary with regard to giving some greater parity between the executive branch and the legislative branch. All right let's go to outrageous. <coughs> Donna what do you have this week? Well, uh, to keep it on the Providence thing, um, something in the just in, I think it was in the past two days. I think it just demonstrates the tone deaf manner of this mayor. They he had some kind of a little news conference. I think it was just in the past 24 hours, talking about uh, like he's in a parallel universe. They have a small summer, you know, summer learning program. And sure, there's lots of nice things that go on with something like that. I, he stood there at a press conference in the last 24 hours, and he has his baby with him um, and he talked about this is so important for our students that we keep their skills going in, even in the summer I thought it was an embarrassment I would be embarrassed to participate in that that who was he kidding after you know, keep their I, skills going throughout the like year it's just right. I'm sorry I know you have okay it's a little summer program not attacking that but 
the, just the tone deaf manner I find is outrageous. It's insulting. Some of these parent groups, I wouldn't be surprised if there's not a lawsuit. Yeah, uh, the ACLU has talked about yeah. that, that for jipping the kids on their education. What do you have, Ken? So I'm going to combine a kudo and an outrage together. Uh, I'm going to give Governor Raimondo kudos for vetoing yet another auto body bill. There, there was an auto body bill that came, they come through every year. It's unbelievable what this industry is doing in terms of legislation and feathering their own nest. Uh, they uh, put forward a bill that would have allowed uh, uh, for the, uh, to sue an insurance company if they total your car and get treble damages. And the insurers went ballistic and said it's going to jack your rates up through the roof. Uh, the governor uh, sanely looked at it and said, no, I'm going to veto this bill. What is up with all of these auto body bills? Why is our General Assembly hell-bent on passing auto body legislation that doesn't exist anywhere else in the country. This is part of the problem that we suffer from. Special interests rule the roost. They're able to have their way with the General Assembly, and more often than not, governors do not protect the taxpayers from these sorts of greedy grabs. And in this circumstance, the governor did. I give her praise for it, and I beg the auto industry in Rhode Island, give us a break. I give you praise for the double kudo outrage rap. What do you have? He monopolized the whole uh, kudo and outrage. There you go. Mine is more on a national level. Um, the Democratic Party has a great opportunity to come forth in the next presidential election and be able to win uh, the, the presidency. Um, if it weren't for the Democratic Socialists that are pushing the agenda so far to the left that the vast majority of Democrats throughout the country are not going to be represented by the Democratic Party. Uh, it's atrocious that uh, we have a small handful of uh, extreme Democrats who are pushing this, just like there was a small handful of extreme Republicans pushing a very conservative agenda um, called the, uh, the, the Tea Party or the reform candidates in the Republican Party. Extremism in the parties are just ripping our country apart. The majority of people in this country, in this state, really are more centrist or moderate in their thinking, and that's who they have to have as a candidate from the Democratic Party. Without that, it's just atrocious that a small group of people are going to rip the party apart. A kudo, though, I want to give a kudo to Frank Coletta. Mm. 48 years of, of broadcast journalism, 41 at uh, Channel 10. Uh, a great tribute, a great guy, and uh, a great person. We're going to miss him dearly. Yeah. No, that is a great kudo. Let's stay on that with what's going on in the Democratic yeah. Party. You wanted to chime I, in on uh, that. I might not be one that you would expect to hear uh, giving a compliment to Nancy Pelosi, but um, I, I think I'll this, take it. I, I think She's trying was, to keep it together. This was a significant week for the party. Um, and I, I think it's funny. I think 2020 could be a test of the power of Twitter. <laughs> Because <laughs> she kind of walked into it, and Nancy sort of threw this out and said, listen, um, there are four people, you know, they don't like her, uh, they're upstarts, and she said, you know, we're going to try to win this thing out in the middle of America, where, uh, you know, very hardworking middle-class people, you know, she kind of was saying, I got news for you, they don't live on Twitter, they don't live on watching, you know, Chris Hayes and MSNBC, um, and a lot of those people are right. Democrats, but they're not far left. And I think she's been in the game a long time and succeeded. And when you, you got to listen to someone like that. Isn't it funny how the court ruled that Trump could not block people on Twitter? Yes. And then somebody immediately filed suit against Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez because yeah, yeah. what's good for the goose is good for the gander. And, and look, she, she shot back, and I think 
big political mistake for this newcomer. AOC basically trying to say Nancy maybe has racist undertones yeah, because the four of them are, ridiculous. you know, minorities, bad political move. You want to weigh in on that? Yeah. Uh, elections are won or lost from the middle. Yeah. Right? Uh, and uh, if we have a choice of two fairly uh, extreme positions in terms of the, the race for president, uh, I think a lot of people are going to be left scratching their heads wondering what to do. All right. Yeah, what they'll also do is they won't come out. Yeah. Um, what will happen is you'll have a low voter turnout because of that. Um, the Democrats have a great opportunity, and they seem to be falling all over themselves and in, in going into the hole uh, over this. Socialists cannot rule this country. Extreme leftist or right-wing uh, party cannot rule this country. It's governed from the middle, just as Ken said. All right, folks. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have. It's a quick 30 minutes. Ken and Donna's always smiling. It's a quick 30 minutes. And Bob, thank you for coming. And thank you for joining us. We're great to uh, be back after the holiday week, back in the swing of things. You think it's slow, but then all of a sudden you tune into Lively and you realize it's not so slow. So join us back here next week if you can as the Lively Experiment continues. And we hope you have a great week. experiment is generously underwritten by for 30 years a lively experiment has been helping us understand the most important issues facing Rhode Islanders hi I'm John Hazen white jr. and I'm proud to be a sponsor of this great program